the Samaritan woman, her life must just be full. Can you imagine what it was like when you were first saved? How when you were first enlightened and you understood that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Like it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, even when we were first believers and in the early church, when they became believers and they were persecuted and they lost, they were plundered of all of their goods, it didn't bother them. Like people literally persecuted them, stole all of their goods, uh, drove them out of their homes and villages, out of their lands, scattered into various places like First Peter 1 says. And it didn't matter for the early church believers because they were so ecstatic about Christ. Remember those days? But you, but you know what happens? What happens is we begin to get familiar with the Savior. We begin to hear a lot about Him over and over. Listen, we sing the same songs over and over. We hear the same types of prayers. We have the same kinds of fellowships. We have the same holidays. And eventually, doesn't it seem like Jesus almost, almost just becomes routine? And it become, he just becomes, uh, yeah, we've done this before and we're going to do it again. And sometimes we lose, we lose the, the specialness, the idea of what does it really mean to follow Christ like John did. Like when, when he's sitting there and he's watching Jesus with the Samaritan village. Can you imagine what that would have been like? To travel with the Lord step by step on those dusty roads? I want the book of John to really awaken you, to awaken your soul, to love the Lord, and to just say there's nothing else that matters but Him. True, life is full of problems, and I don't discount that, and, and, they're, and they're hard, and we cry, and, and we've been there, and the days are dark, and the nights are dark, but he is still the shining light in it all, isn't he? And I don't want you to lose that. As a matter of fact, I want that just to, to go greater and greater. So I want you to experience the following of Jesus that the early church had. And so here, we leave the region of Samaria. In verse 43, the word of God says, Now after the two days... He departed from there and went to Galilee. I, I don't get it. Stop. He's having a great ministry in Samaria. Two days, and many, many people have believed and trusted him, not because of the Samaritan woman, but because of his own testimony, his own word as to who he is. But he knows, what's, who is he following? The Father's will. He's not following his own will. He's following the Father's will. And now the Father, I love in the book of Isaiah, it says the Father awakens the Son every morning to speak into his ear. It says that. It's a great text in Isaiah 51. Literally, God the Father, every day of the earthly life of Jesus, is speaking into the ear of his Son. Okay, Son, today we're doing this. Today you're going here. Today you're going here. Today you will say this and do this. It was, there was such a, a oneness in the Father and Son that whatever the Father said to do, the Son said, I am here to do it. And so now the Father says, move out of Samaria where there's lots of salvation going on and go to Galilee. But look at what's so astounding in verse 44. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. He came, he came unto his own people and what did they do? They rejected him. A prophet has no honor in his own country. So Jesus is leaving Samaria, a place of blessing and, and really welcoming, and he's going to a place, his own home places, that they do not receive him. They, they do not receive him as the Messiah. It does say this in verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. It almost sounds contrary, doesn't it, to verse 44, but it's not. Here's why. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans, his own people, received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. 
for they also had gone to the feast. Hey, everybody, why were these Galileans following Jesus? At this point, only because he's a miracle worker. They are following him because he was amazing in his miracles. Healing people, who knows what kind of miracles. We don't have even all the miracles that he performed in Jerusalem. But whatever he was doing down there, these Galileans saw it. So when he came, he was like the greatest thing. We want to see miracles. We want to see lame people rising up. We want to see sick people healed. They only want to follow the Lord to the extent of what he will do for them. And can I say this? We are no different. Oftentimes we get the idea, I love Jesus and I'll follow him as long as everything's going my way and I'm getting what I should out of him. But as soon as what I want out of him doesn't come, then I'm leaving him and I'm going astray. In 20 years of ministry, 25 years of ministry, I can tell you people that were in my small group when I was first saved and we were learning the Bible, studying the Bible together, very few are still serving the Lord. Very few still love him. He has, he has, for some reason, lost the attraction. And right now, they are eager. They are eager to have Jesus in their hometowns, but only for what he can do, not for who he is and what he will do on the cross. As I told you this morning, the crowds are going to swell, so he's going to have tens of thousands of followers. But when he preaches the message in John 6, and he says, you want another meal? I just fed you bread supernaturally yesterday. You had bread and fish to fill you up, and the only reason you are back today is for more miracle, more bread. I'm, and then he says this, I am not giving you bread. I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you myself, spiritual bread that comes down from heaven that will satisfy the, the soul, not the body. And do you know what the people said? They could not leave Jesus fast enough. They know he, they know he is of God, but they will not follow him because they want bread for their stomach, not healing for their soul. And so they leave in droves until after crowds of 10,000, they're dwindled down to 12. Isn't that the sad state? So here we have in Galilee, people receiving him, but not for who he is in his salvation and what he can do to heal the soul. They simply want to be entertained with another miracle. I'm sick of the church being entertained. The church is, oftentimes, churches gather by the masses just for what they can have for the entertainment. But listen, when it comes down to the hard thing of, are you willing to follow Christ? Are you willing to, like I said this morning, obey the word at whatever cost? If it means you lose your job, if it means you lose your income, if it means whatever, like whatever, if you're, if you're willing to follow Jesus to that extent, are you willing to do it? I would say not many are. Even I wonder if I am. So we have that group of people that receive him and they welcome him, but it's not a real heart thing at all. It's an outward thing that they're doing. Let's continue on in verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, the distance from Cana to Capernaum is about 20 miles. It would take a good walk, a quite a long walk, even at four miles an hour, to go the 20-mile the journey. But this nobleman, this word nobleman, it means one who is attached to the king. So we know the king at this time is King Herod, right? King Herod. And so this nobleman is obviously in the employment of King Herod. 
And he is living up in Capernaum, which is Jesus' hometown. So Jesus has a home, some apartment or house that he lives at in Capernaum, according to Matthew 4. And the nobleman hears, hey, Jesus was down in Jerusalem performing all sorts of signs and wonders. And now he's in Cana, 20 miles away. And so I'm going to go there and meet this person. So all, all he knows so far is that Jesus is some kind of miracle worker. And so he comes to Cana, where Jesus is located, and it says his son was sick at Capernaum. So I would say maybe my first point, he's, he's got a desperate faith. Doesn't he have a desperate faith at this point? His son is sick. I don't know. We, we don't have a biological child, but I know when Melissa's dad, when Melissa's brother passed away, um, Melissa's dad said, there is nothing harder in life than to lose a child in death. And this is a man who experienced a lot of heartache and a lot of pain in life. And when he, at that funeral, I remember being down there in Iowa at your brother's funeral, and I remember Russell getting up and he he was crying profusely, and he was like, there is nothing harder a parent has to go through than a son or or a, a child who passes away. Listen, this noble man will go anywhere for a, for a cure, won't he? His son is at the point of death. He is sick with a fever. And traveling 20 miles for help is no problem. But why is he searching out Jesus? Because in his life, he has a crisis. If he didn't have a crisis, would he be looking for the Savior? No, because he doesn't have a need. Sometimes that is the starting point. When we are driven to our knees, we are humbled, we are left beyond measure. I would never have come to Christ if God had not literally removed everything he could from my life. I mean, I was so dependent on myself and my ability and my good works that I thought if anybody's going to go to heaven, if there is a heaven, it would be me. He had to literally pull everything out of my life until I was left alone in a hospital room looking up and saying, wow, Lord, um, I have nothing now. I have absolutely nothing. And then I finally went to the Savior. And so this man, same thing. He's got a, he's got a, a desperate faith. It's the faith of a desperate man. And so moving on, you're going to watch now as the story unfolds. And this is what we need to learn from this. He moves from this crisis faith to a confident, committed faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in verse 47, uh, 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and listen to this and implored him to come down and heal his son. Can you picture this? This man who is well-known, well-respected, high in the government, a nobleman coming to Jesus, begging, maybe even get, it doesn't say, but maybe getting down on his hands and knees. How humbling for a grown man. And begging, and literally imploring, continually begging. Sir, 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 you must come down to my house. I know it's 20 miles away, but you must. Sir, listen to me. Hear my voice. My son is sick. He is going to die. There's nothing anyone can do. You must come with me. Will you come, please? Will you come? Please, sir, please, help, help. Can you hear this? Maybe tugging on his sandals and and feet, clinging to him, saying, I have nowhere else to turn. Calm down. Now notice what he knows. Right now, he does not believe that Jesus is God. Come down from heaven to pay for the sins of the world. He doesn't know that. What does he know? In order for this man to heal my son, he needs to be in the same room. He needs to be in at the bedside. Maybe he'll hold his hands. Maybe he'll do a potion or a lotion or a spell. But this man's got to be in the room with my son or my son is not going to survive. Do you see what he's thinking so far? Well, his son now is at the point of death. 
Verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, so he's addressing the nobleman, unless you, literally in the Greek, you is plural, unless you all, all you people. Why? Because the nobleman is not alone. The word people is in italics because it's not in the, in the, it's not in the Greek, but the word you is plural, so it implies all of you people. So Jesus is speaking to the nobleman, but he's addressing everybody because he's got a crowd following him, and the nobleman has a crowd following him, and who knows how many, and Jesus makes this proclamation, and he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, what kind of faith is that? You know, faith of a miracle worker. But that is not the faith that saves, is it? It is not. Miracle workers, we need a faith that saves by placing your trust in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Take your Bibles. Listen, let's go to your Bibles quickly for 1 Corinthians 1. Listen to this. It's such a great text. 1 Corinthians 1. Jesus is telling all the Jewish Galileans, maybe Gentiles mixed in there, And he's saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you people, you will never believe in me. This is not the faith that pleases God. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. I love this text. 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll look at verse 18. I think this is really what Jesus was getting at. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross, the message of the cross... It is a singular message. So if I were to outline this part of the text, I would say, first of all, there is a singular message. It is the message of the cross, the death and resurrection of Christ for our sins. It, this message is foolishness. Literally, it's, it's moronic. The word in the Greek is moron. It's moronic. It's insane to those who are perishing. If you do not have your faith in Jesus Christ, then to hear about the cross and resurrection is foolishness. It's insanity. You don't get it. But to us, you and I, who, believe, who are being saved, not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, but we're being saved throughout, through, until our glorification, it is the power of God. Don't we know that? Heaven came down, we understand the power of God. Here, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Okay, let me tell you real quick what this is about. Because this text comes from Isaiah. Let me tell you, it's a great Old Testament story. Remember the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel? It was being harassed by King Assyria during the days of Hezekiah. So Hezekiah is the king of Jerusalem, and he's got a weak nation. He's a weak king with a weak nation, although he's got a good heart for the Lord. So Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, comes down and is going to destroy Jerusalem. And remember how the people are on the tops of their, their houses in Jerusalem? They're looking down at the valley. So picture, you're up on a little ridge, and you're in Jerusalem. The walls are barricaded because you don't want, the gates are closed. You don't want the enemy to come in. And everybody's up on the roofs looking over at hundreds of thousands of Assyrian soldiers. And they, you know what their cry is? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's their thought. Hey, we're going to die. There's no way that we're going to stop this army of Assyrians. Uh, we are going to die. So eat, drink. You want to know what our wisdom is? Our wisdom is eat, drink, party all night. We'll get drunk. We'll do whatever we can because tomorrow we're going to die. It's hopeless. There's nothing that's going to save us. Another group of people in Jerusalem we know, they said, King Hezekiah, get help from Egypt. Get Egypt over here. Then we'll battle it out and we might have a slim chance of winning. See, that's the wisdom of the wise, isn't it? 
The wisdom of the wise is, hey, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, there's no future. Or, hey, we need help. We cannot trust the God of Israel. We need help. Let's get Egypt to help. God says, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I'm going to destroy the understanding of the prudent. Here's how I'm going to do it. Not one arrow is going to be shot into the city of Jerusalem and hurt a horse or a person. So God says, stand back and watch me work. And that very night, the angel of the Lord came down and killed the whole Assyrian army. So when Hezekiah gets up the next morning and he looks out, thinking there's going to be a great surge of enemy across the wall, they're dead. Can you imagine in one night, God does it himself. And everybody was like, oh, God saves. God has the power to save. See see what destroyed the wisdom of the wise? God can do it. So that's why Paul says, you know what? When it comes to the message of the cross, all the wise people on earth, they'll never see Jesus in their wisdom in all of their understanding, in all of their, in all of their school training, they will. Like you guys know, right? In high school, you don't learn about this. You're going to learn about um, North American birds, punctuation marks. You're going to learn about tanks. You're going to learn about all sorts of things. That's their three topics on their communication this week. They've got to do speeches. Um, there, listen. You can learn all about those things, and those are good things to learn about. But they will never teach you at the school or in university, unless it's a Bible college or Bible school about the message of the cross. And this message, which the world thinks is foolishness, is the only message that saves. So then verse 20. Where is the wise person? Hmm, they're gone. Where is the scribe? Uh, perishing. Where is the disputer of this age? The debater. Those talk show hosts on daytime TV. They're gone. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Yes, he has. Why? Because of the singularity of the, the simplicity of the gospel. Listen to verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews, the Jewish people, they request a sign. They need a miracle. And if they don't get a miracle, they'll never believe in Jesus. And God says, I'm not going to give you a miracle. I'm going to give you Jesus. The Greeks, what do the Greeks think? The Greeks request or seek wisdom. They think if they just study harder and think deeper, they're going to be able to understand it, but they can't. So God says, I'm not going to give you a sign, and you're not going to find it in wisdom. It's only found in believing the message of the cross. But we, you and I and the Apostle Paul as a team, preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. Why? Can I tell you why it was a stumbling block? Anybody that hung on a tree, according to Deuteronomy, was cursed. And when Paul went around saying, you Jewish people, your king and savior hung on a cross, they said, how could God curse our Messiah? How could God curse our king? And why would we serve a king who's been cursed? It doesn't make sense. It was a stumbling block. For the the Greeks, you want to know what they believed? The Greeks believed that this body was bad. The spirit was good, but the body was bad. And when it went in the grave, it was done, and that was it. And to, to say there was a resurrection of this body, they thought zombies would come out of the grave and it would be a horrifying scene. They did not want to believe in a resurrection. So, for the, so the whole cross and resurrection was a stumbling block to Jew and Gentile. The death was a stumbling block to the Jew. The resurrection, a stumbling block to the Gentile. And they couldn't get past it. And until you get past it, you cannot be saved. 
Isn't that amazing? So go back to John 4 as we continue and finish this, the story. So the, the nobleman, he's got to get past this. He's got to get past the issue of the cross and the resurrection in order to be saved. So Jesus says to all the people, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. So verse 49, the nobleman said to him again, Sir, come down before my child dies. Wow. If I was Jesus, I would have said, no way, Jose. No way. You believe in me first, and then I'll do something for you. But that is not our God. That is me. That, you want to know what Jesus does? Verse 50. Jesus said to him, go your way. Literally, go about your business as king's, as king's noblemen. Go about your way. Go about your business. Then he says these words, your son lives. Get this. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Do you see the increase in faith? At first he just thought, yep, this is the only man that might be able to heal my son. And now when Jesus spoke, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Has the man seen any evidence of a miracle yet? No. Does he know if his son is healed or not? They do not have Snapchat. So he didn't get a snap from his wife saying, oh, look. Sonny boy's healed. Praise God. He does, he, there's no way he can find out with that distance during those days. He has got to wait until he gets home before he, or a servant comes before he gets any news about his son. But the word of God, the word of Jesus was good enough for him. And so I believe he went on his way and finished his business for the day. We know what time it was when the boy gets healed. You know what time Jesus said your son lives? He, one o'clock in the afternoon. Now, how long would it take you to travel 20 miles? Four miles an hour, how many miles? How many hours? Five hours. Could he leave at one and get home at five or six? Sorry, math. Yes, he could. He could, but he doesn't race home. Listen, if I was that nobleman and Jesus said, your son lives, I would be like, okay, see you later. I got to go check and see if it's really going to work. And then I would run, 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 run. I would do a seven minute, a seven minute eight minute mile. Um, to get back to Capernaum. And then I would just race through the door and say, is he healed? Is he healed? Is he healed? This man does not do that. Look at his faith already. In just a short time, he is saying, Jesus, if you said it, that is good enough for me. I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to go my way, go about my business. And when I'm done with my business, I will go home the next day and check on my boy. I love it. Do you guys like that kind of faith? Do you see in just a few short verses what has happened? Can I say this? I want to know my greatest goal in ministry. I want to reach many, many people with the gospel. I really do. I want, I want to see many hundreds saved if I can speak to them the gospel. But what I really care about is I want your faith to grow. I want your faith to grow. I don't want it to be a crisis faith where you're only running to the Lord in the moment of crisis. Where he's just, it's convenient because it's kind of nice when he's there and here for you, but when things are better, you're gone. Or when things get really bad, you're gone. I don't like that kind of faith. I want the faith that says, I'm going to stick with the Lord no matter what. And I'm going to grow. Now, how does your faith grow? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So the more you know of the Word of God, the greater your faith is. The less you know of the Word of God and the less you apply, the less your faith. You want to increase your faith. Get to know God's Word get to know the Word of God and the God of the Word, 
and then, and then follow him, obey him. Step out in faith and just say, I will do it. God says it, I will do it. Um, that's what I really desire. May your faith be strong. So the man believed his word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. That's what Jesus said, go your way, and so he went his way. Look at verse 51. And as he was now going down, because now it's the next day we're going to find out, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Oh, wow. Uh, sometimes we read that so fast. I don't know if you read this this past week, but we read that so fast. I like to, st- when I'm studying, I-, I like to sit on this for a while and just think, this nobleman was hurting so bad. He was crying and weeping. I bet he almost had run out of tears, I think. And then he gets the news from the servant that his son lives. Can you imagine? His heart must have been just full, like, that man, Jesus, he's God. He's, he's got to be God. He's got to be the Savior of the world that has been spoken of. I bet he had a smile as big as can be. God doesn't heal everybody, though, does he? Many people that Jesus... I bet within that crowd of people with the noblemen, I bet there were many parents who had sick children, Jesus didn't heal them, did he? But what did he do? He did the Father's will. And it was the Father's will that this boy be saved from his physical fever. Well, let's look at what the next verse, the next part says. And they said, oh, verse 52, then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. See, this is a smart man. He's like, okay, tell me, the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday. See, he delayed a whole day to to get to his son. Yesterday, at the seventh hour, one in the afternoon, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed. He trusted. He threw his whole weight on Jesus and said, if this man can heal my son like that, he can take me to heaven with my sin. He can pay for my sin and take me there with him. He, he, he placed himself fully on Jesus. And not only that, look at the rest of this. And his whole household. I bet he set his family around and he said, listen, family, listen to my news. This man, Jesus, is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And I want you as my wife and servants and family members, and grandma, grandpa, come over here. I want you all to hear this, and I want all of you to believe. Because extended families lived together back then. And so the whole household believes. That is exciting. It's a confident faith. It's a faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any works and deeds of the law. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So let me ask you as we close here, just a few questions. Have you placed your faith fully in Jesus Christ alone? You're not trusting in Jesus Christ plus something, not Jesus plus works, plus religion, plus something. And as I look around, I I know most of you, um, and I would say, yes, praise God that you have come to the place of the nobleman and his household where you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But can I ask you this? Are you willing 
are you willing to pursue Jesus and follow him all the days of your life? That is the question for the believer. It's strange. You want to know what I think is strange still? And I can't, I don't know how to explain this. But in Jesus' three-year ministry, tens of thousands heard him preach. Tens of thousands, if not more, saw him do miracles. And yet, after his death and resurrection, how many are praying in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to birth the church? 120. Like what happened to what happened to all these people in those three years? If your son gets healed like that, you would think this nobleman is going to give everything for Jesus. He will follow him and live for him and learn from him. But we don't know what happens. We don't know. Maybe they were just hiding out and staying there until... Did did this nobleman become part of the church? Was he part of a Capernaum Bible church where he was learning the gospel or sharing the gospel and teaching the truth as the church began? I don't know. I wonder. But we can't really care about this nobleman. We don't know, and he lived a long time ago. We can care about you and I today, right? The church is God's place to grow, to use your gifts, to reach the world. And I praise God for what he's doing at this church, how he is using your gifts and abilities to strengthen the body so that our missionaries can be strengthened and they can accomplish their task. And then we can go with them to Haiti and Africa and Peru and all of the different places. And God can be glorified and our faith can be strengthened. So I guess I'm going to ask you to um, strengthen your faith this week. Strengthen your faith and then Share the gospel with people. Find somebody this week to share the gospel with. But strengthen your faith. Be in the word. And then be willing as you read the word, Lord, what would you have me do today? Who do, who do you want me to speak to? Who do you want me to encourage? Be open to that. If we don't do that at the beginning of the day, then our day gets so cluttered and things go so fast, the day is gone. And then Tuesday is gone. And then Wednesday is gone. And then by Thursday... We've kind of already forgotten about that, but if every day you say, Lord, what will you have me do today? How will you have me live at school, um, to talk to people at school? What, how, what, how do you want me to behave in school? How do you want me to behave at work? What should I do? What should I say? What should I watch? Lord, tell me. Speak to me. And then his word will guide you. His word is, is sufficient to guide you in all things. Isn't, don't we have such a great Savior? Never lose the awe of Jesus. Don't lose the awe of his creative ability. Don't lose the awe of his healing and miracles. And then just don't lose your awe of the Savior. Things change now in chapter 5. Next Sunday, next Sunday morning, things are going to change. Guess what? Jesus is going to deliberately, he's going to pick and choose miracles to do that are going to make the religious angry. They're going to get so angry by the end of John 11. Well, actually, in John 5, they are, they're going to already want to kill him. Actually, they're going to seek and find ways to kill him. They're going to plot his death already in John 5. And by John 11, he has done so many incredible miracles to del- just on purpose to show who he is and make the religious so angry, they're going to hand him over to Pilate and he will be crucified. So although we're like, wow, this is such a happy story, it is. You're going to find, as Jesus is going, the resistance and the opposition to Jesus is going to be overwhelming. And he will be crucified in all of his goodness and glory. What a Savior. Father, thank you for our time in the Word. And just singing tonight, the testimonies tonight have brought such encouragement to my heart. And this Word, Father, thank you for this noble man who believed the Word of Jesus 
And he followed Jesus' command. He went about his business, and the very next day found out that his son truly was healed, just as you had said. We can trust you, Father, not only for the day-to-day burdens and, and trials and routine things of life, but we can trust you in the darkest days, like this noble man. Father, some of us in this church are going through dark, difficult valleys. Help them, Father. Encourage them. Give them strength and faith for each day as they look to the cross and they just remind themselves how much you love them. Father, for those who are on the mountaintops right now and the sun is shining and things are great, keep us humble so that we might not be, grow independent and wearisome of the light and the goodness that you give us. Help us not to despise your goodness. May all of these things bring us closer to you. The dark days, the bright days, even just the average days. And we're going to be excited this week to serve you. We're going to be excited to walk with you each and every moment of this week. So guard our church, protect our church, watch over our missionaries. All over this planet we have missionaries. And Father, use them and strengthen them and and help them to communicate the gospel to the language and the people that, and the culture that they're around. We know that you are the savior of the world. And you have placed us right here in Hermantown and Duluth and Proctor and Esco and Cloquet. Help us to be diligent to reach the people right around us in our own little village. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, praise God. Have a great week. Um, so